I'm Mel Kettle, and you're listening to This Connected Life, the show where connected leaders share their experience, values, and strategies that have helped them become more connectable so they achieve success in life and business. Hello, everyone. I am sitting here in my office in Brisbane today, and I'm having a conversation and a chat with my thought leader's buddy, Cameron Schwab. Cam's in Melbourne. I'm assuming you're in Melbourne, and we're recording online. So let's see how this works. I don't tend to record this way very often. Anyway, Cam Schwab, well, you'll find out more about who he is if his name isn't familiar as we progress through this conversation, but I'm really excited to be looking to talk to you today. So thank you very much. No, I appreciate it. As you know, I enjoy your work and enjoy our conversations. So um, it's good to share um, share that conversation with other people. That sounds good. All right. So my first question, what does connection mean to you? Connection. So it's interesting because I have a little framework which I use, which has had a little triangle and you put purpose, you, you were to write purpose in the middle of it. At the bottom of the triangle, I have just this notion of meaning as where it sits on. And then I have on the two sides of the triangle, I have belonging, a sense of belonging, being part of something which is bigger than you. And on the other side, I have the word connection, just as, as our word, which has always had strong resonance with me. And, and I think in that context, I think of it more as the pure connection with what it is that you do. And almost that childlike connection in some ways where you're you're attracted to something for reasons that in some ways you can't quite articulate at that time and for me initially you know that was sport you know mainly football AFL uh, it's been art it's been other things and as you get older and even as a kid it was superheroes you know or it was dinosaurs or these things which somehow you connect to, and then obviously as you get older, you, you recognise the other forms of connection, which are your emotional connection to other people and you know, the deeper, deeper connections, which come that moment when you put a little bundle of joy in the back of your car where you become a parent, you know, where you go, well, I don't know if there'll ever be a connection quite like that, which you're connecting at a, at a level which you perhaps didn't even realise you had inside you at that time. And with that connection sounds very Spider-Man. He becomes responsibility, I suppose, as well. And I still think even now today, there's elements of those, the connection with the who we are, what we do scenario. And often in ways which, as I've probably shown in this last few minutes, you can find difficulties in explaining to people why why you are connected in the way that you are to that thing. And uh and still to this day, I don't know, for instance, why I fell in love with the game. I don't know why I fell in love with art. I don't know. I probably know the reasons I fell in love with my wife, but, you know, the <laughs> and I'm certainly in love with my children. And so they're all parts of the same thing, I think. Does that answer that? I'm not sure. What I love about that question is everybody has a different take on it. And I've had people say to me, "Do you? how do you mean? Do you mean how I connect with myself, how I connect with my husband, how I connect with my kids, how I connect with my staff? And it's, it's whatever it means to you. And you mentioned a few things that I'd like to know more about. And the first is, who was your favourite superhero? Oh, Batman. I think there's always an attraction to Superman because he was super. As I got older, I think it was the uh, – and I still do have this attraction to Batman, to be honest. I think it's uh, just even the way people have tried to interpret Batman. There, there's so many different versions of him, whereas there's hard to get that complexity out of other 
something which you know, initially it was the 60s television show, which, you know, which I loved, uh, but it was comic books. And, and even with my artwork, my artwork now is still very comic-oriented, and I think it came from Batman. But Superman's only interesting because there's kryptonite. If there's no kryptonite, he becomes boring, really. And so I think it was Batman. And the fact that he really wasn't a superhero, he was just a rich bloke with good toys. But there was a, the pure, maybe the, the light and darkness that you'd see, and there was a wonderful creativity and narrative around every aspect of the different interpretations over the years. And the fact that almost 100 years later, we've still got this flawed hero capturing the hearts and minds of kids is extraordinary, really. Yeah, I agree. I do have to ask, though, what did you think of Michael Keaton as Batman? Because he seems to have been the most polarizing yeah, he was because there's nothing super about him in the traditional sense. But I think that was actually the, that, again, that was part of its greatness, wasn't it? That it was one of us. He could be sitting next to you in the cafe. And I think that was actually just the, the fact that you could interpret a thing in, in that way. And I think it also came off, it was the first time we went close to seeing a darker version of him in most people's eyes because up until that period of time, the way it was interpreted in the 60s, which was, you know, really was taking the piss in many ways. It was a show for kids, but it was actually made for adults, of which, so I, I got to love those series firstly as a, as a seven-year-old and then got to re-love it as a 30-year-old because you realised you know, at that point that it was the comedy in the way it was actually being interpreted. So it was, and I think it's a wonderful thing on life, isn't it? Because you and I can look at exactly the same situation, have a different opinion. Someone applies a logical way of thinking to that thing and someone else takes a much more emotional. I, I couldn't never interpret Batman without a deep emotional connection to it because that's just how it was. I think that's what's great about the superheroes and cartoons and comics is that there's the level of it that children fall in love with yeah. and then there's a whole deeper meaning and a deeper level that you need to have a level of sophistication and maturity to be able to understand and comprehend and take a different meaning from. Yeah, and that's had a huge influence on my art. My art's very comic book flavoured. Really from that, you know, that's where it came. I, I thought that I would, I would naturally grow out of that interpretive style, if you like, but I haven't. You know, my, my you know, I... I have a, a comic book outline to my drawings. I, I ink them or I colour them in ways which is reminiscent of the comics, you know, both now and also historically. And and I think it was also because I do a lot of my drawings are of even the ones I do of footballers are recognising because I understand because I've been close to the game. The game's basically full of a whole lot of scared little people in, in mm. many ways, of which is a very different interpretation of them when you're sitting in a grandstand watching them do their own version of the superhuman acts, really, doing things certainly that most people can't do. I feel like we need to explain your love of football because when I first met you about two and a half years ago, I really liked you when I met you and it wasn't until about six months later that I realised who you were and I'm using little quotation marks for yeah, that. Yeah, yeah no, it's... <laughs> And my husband laughed when I told him. So for those of you who don't know Cam's name, he's the former CEO of Richmond Football Club and the Fremantle Football Club in Australian rules football. So for international listeners, that's a really big thing in Australia for most people, not necessarily for me. Again, my husband laughs at me all the time. <laughs> and it's a big deal. It's part of the culture in a lot of this country. So Cam's name is familiar to an enormous portion of the population. What I love about you, though, is that you have so many different levels to you. There's so much more to you than just being the former CEO of AFL clubs 
And so I want to talk a little bit about that. But the first thing I want to talk to you about is when you were CEO, what were some of the biggest challenges that you faced when it comes to building relationships within your organisation and, and across the broader community? Because the community plays such a big part in AFL in this country. Yeah, it does. And it's, it's always going to be a little bit vexed if um, probably even from a, I'll talk about the, because of the nature of the game, if people can't deeply identify with their club, put it this way, people would come up to me, I was also CEO of the Melbourne Football Club, who were the originators of the rules of Australian football. So my lineage as the CEO of the club goes back to the very person who wrote the original rules of the game, which was in 1858, so a very long time ago. But I would have people who would come up and say that, look, I'm a fifth-generation Melbourne supporter and, and my grandkids also barrack for Melbourne, you know, because of my influence over their parents. And so it's hard to be seven generations of anything in Australia, really. I would find out from people who they support, who they barrack for, often before I really know anything other than their name. And that's because people hold often this identity as almost the never-changing element of them, and I even have a little joke. I've got a transgender daughter and she's changed gender but hasn't changed a footy club. So there's every aspect of a person's life might change, but they, they generally stay with their team. And so if you're presenting or representing a club which is incongruent with that, well, you're basically disconnecting those people from the identity that they have of themselves. And that can be very challenging because any organisation needs to move forward needs to have a, a mechanism by which it can perform. And sometimes its own heritage and its own folklore can be quite limiting from that perspective. And an example is the old South Melbourne Football Club is now the Sydney Swans Football Club, you know, and, and that would have disconnected a lot of people who related to their local football club in the suburb of South Melbourne. But also there's now generations of people who can relate to their football club as the Sydney Swans. And maybe they kept a few of those, enough of those people on the way, and I think I'm pretty sure they did. So if you're representing something which is 160 years old, you want to treat that with a fair bit of respect and you have to be able to honour that. But at the same time, what those people want is that they want the team to perform. They want the team to win. And that's in a competition where you've got one winner and one loser every weekend is, or in, in our competition, you know, nine winners, nine losers, you can be really difficult. And it was always that balance between purpose and performance, really, at different times could, there was a tension between them. Because if you push the performance aspect of it so hard that it actually put the future of the club in jeopardy through spending or something similar, well, that was, again, dishonouring those people. So it was always a really difficult and challenging role. And I felt that particularly when I went to Fremantle, actually, as CEO, because I was a Victorian in WA and they've got enormous pride in their own heritage and sort of saying, well, why do they need a Victorian to come over here and run our footy club? Why can't we come up with someone to do that? So I felt that during that period. So I was then going to just head in to say then as a CEO in generality is, and everyone talks about the lonely at the top element of it, and that's a real thing because even in terms of structure, you're reporting to a board and a board is made up of seven, eight, nine, ten people. So you lose the very thing that you perhaps had throughout your career up until that time is that, that line of sight with I report to this person, whereas a board you have probably a stronger relationship with a chair than you do with anyone else. But it still is you have you might have eight people, eight different opinions on, on a particular issue and you have to make judgment calls. And that's a small board with eight. I do a lot of work with nonprofits and in the US one of my colleagues said to me, Oh, I'm struggling with our board and I said, Oh, how many people are on it? And she said fifty seven. Oh gosh. 
<laughs> I said, what, what? Maybe that helps, you know. Maybe it gets so diluted <laughs> by that that it actually yeah, mm. quite help. I remember the first time one of my CEO clients said to me, I'm so, I'm so lonely. Then also you have a group of people who are reporting to you. And the interesting thing about that and where people often underestimate part of its idiosyncratic ways, if you like, is that those people you're seeking to build strong interrelationships and form a team-based approach with a group of people who you're wanting to form a team-based response to most of the you know, traditionally challenging issues that senior leadership teams want to develop. But they're also people who are often very different and they're often much more comfortable in the areas that they've come from than the, the group that they're currently working in. So, for instance, your finance people are much more comfortable with their finance people. Your commercial people are much more comfortable with their commercial people. But then you're going to ask them to come together to make the you know, fundamentally the most important decisions that the organisation will ever make and they mightn't have any common ground from which they actually make those decisions. So as a CEO, you're in between these two almost contradictory things of which I assumed when you take a CEO role that you're sort of the boss, you know, that was the thing, but you're, you're not really because the boss has eight, nine, ten, or 57 different bosses and you also can't tell your um, the people working for you how to do their jobs as well. So it required a nimbleness, which I, I totally underestimated before I took on those roles. And, and I took my first one on at 24, so I probably got them to practice it for the next 25 years. And I still reckon I came to the end of it and I was still working all that stuff out. I think you underestimate as a leader how many different relationships you need to create and how many are at your equal level versus managing up versus managing down. I'm assuming that was particularly challenging as a 24-year-old when you're still trying to work out who you are and who's in your world, let alone being catapulted into such a position of responsibility. Yeah, and really, I, and I was a young 24 as well. Like I hadn't, I hadn't even gone to uni. I'd, I'd worked six years of my whole life, basically. Probably not even that. It's not perfect, but it's probably also, and I was fortunate I had some very strong mentors, but what I worked out, it was the job, the job that I was doing was hard for me then, but it was still hard for me right at the end. There's certain jobs which are never going to be anything other than hard. And if someone rang up tomorrow and said, we want you to be a CEO of X Footy Club again, well, I would go into that with recognizing regardless of the wonderful experiences that I've been fortunate to have. I just have to be ready for the job to be hard. But the core of it will be my success in that role will, you know, coming back to your point, will boil down to the ability to establish trusted relationships with you know, obviously the people who work for you and, and obviously those who I work for. And, and that's why I often come back to a, a, just one core question, which is a nice little check-in for leaders every day is, do I believe in my people and do my people believe in me? Then by extension of that, you then you, you then say, okay, what makes me believable as a leader and what do I need from those individuals for me to believe in them? And I'm convinced that as leaders we're in the belief business, perhaps more than anything else, because the achievement aspects of it generally happen in the moment. In High performance happens in the moment. The majority of the time we're preparing for that moment. And we can lose track of things very, very quickly if we lose our sense of belief, no doubt. Yeah, totally agree. If you were asked to go back as CEO for either a club you've been CEO of or a different one, what would you say? Would you say yes or would you say, I'm happy now, thanks? I've done my dash. Uh, no, I think there'll always be an element of me which would be attracted to it. 
almost because of the, the very first thing that we talked about. The sense of belonging is really powerful. The sense of connections there still for me and I get meaning from it. So it still fits for me. The way the game plays out though, because I, I got to do it for such a long time and so I was 25 years as a CEO. So you, I got to do it for such a long time that you have to also be ready for the fact that whilst I generally the game finishes you before you're finished with it, if you like, you know, and, and that almost is for everyone. So that is, you know, the player who wishes he could play one more year, the but his body's given up on him or someone's got an opinion that they can no longer play it at that level. It's it's the coach who thinks that they're just about to turn it around now or it's the CEO, and I'm probably, because I was a, a lifer, if you like, that um, is in that situation. But Because it's not something that I'm thinking about in a real sense in a day. And, and the stuff that we're doing, as well as studying art, was probably part of me transitioning even my personal identity beyond what something which had been and people might know, but my father was a very well-known football person as well. So the identity that I'm creating for myself now actually has probably been there since you know, I'm trying to move beyond something which has been there since I was a little boy in lots of ways because I'd, I'd go to places and straight away people would ask me because I've got an unusual surname was, you know, I'm any relation to and, uh, and you know, I could wear it like a big badge of honour and say, yeah, that person's my dad. Yeah, nice, nice. I just want to digress a little bit. One of the things that I've heard you talk about a lot has been mental health and there've been quite a few well-known AFL and other sporting people in recent times come out and talk about their mental health challenges. How would you like to see mental health treated in the workplace, whether it's a sporting workplace or more commercial? Probably because I've had my own challenges in this area that I'm going to sound like a broken record again here, but that little model that I explained at the start, this notion of purpose, was a direct product of me going deep as a result of my personal challenges in this area that because purpose for me was fairly easy to define, whereas I know how deep that challenge can actually be for some people. But for me, it was relatively easy. When you're involved in an AFL club, you've got a role which is obvious as a CEO, as challenging as it is. You're involved in entities which are over 100 years old and they've always done the same things and it was relatively easy, but when that became, when that wasn't there for me at different times and, and in times and at times when I was actually doing it, that was the area that I felt was the one which I'd lost. So I would say as a, as a starting point for people is if the work that you're doing now doesn't give you that, my experience is that your possibilities or the, the chance of having challenges with your mental health just goes up exponentially. And that requires by definition personally for you to go deep. And, and I think whilst workplaces do have a responsibility in regard to this, the fundamental responsibility does sit with the person who has made the choice to align themselves with that organisation. And if the organisation isn't one which is going to help you in that regard, and there's a term which Disney use, you know, when people want to go, like there's no lack of people wanting to go, wanting to go and work with Disney. But if they're not prepared to be all the things that Disney expects of them, and that's not for everyone. Disney say you've got to find your happiness elsewhere. And it's a nice line, as, as hard-nosed as it seems. And finding your happiness elsewhere is not an easy conversation. But if you're spending your life trying to fit in to a workplace rather than to belong to a workplace, well, I think you've probably just upped the ante in regard to your challenges from a mental health perspective. 
And so the things that I really focus on, and from my personal perspective, the the mental health issues that I faced created a meant that I ruminated a lot and I avoided. They were the, sort of the two main things coming out of it that I noticed. And what that did by extension is it took away my ability to maintain high levels of energy and also I became distracted. So I lost my sense of where my attention should sit. And so I just worked really hard at those things. And so I think organisations, one, is always focusing on trying to create something deeper as it relates to who they are and what they want to be, are much more likely to create places where people feel this deep sense of association and therefore much less likely to suffer from some of the stuff. Because if you're spending eight or nine hours doing stuff that you don't like doing, the chances are you're going to end up unhealthy. That would be my experience. Yeah, couldn't agree more. My personal benchmark for that is when I used to wake up, if I had three consecutive sleepless nights because of worried about work, that was my trigger to try and find a new job. (laughs) Because one night every now and then you understand, two nights is kind of acceptable, three nights there's a deeper problem. Yeah. And so you've got to ask yourself what you're doing about that as well. So I think it comes down to three questions in regard to this. The, The first one is you say, okay, what does the role expect of me? If you just make start making a list of what does the role expect of me, and if the role's expecting things of you which aren't aligned to who you are, you've got a big exclamation mark. Someone's shining a spotlight on you. And the second question is, what do I expect of the role? And if you look deeply at the role and think, this thing can't be for me, and there's no prospect of it being that thing for me, not only are you dishonouring yourself, but you're dishonouring everyone you get to work with because there's a whole lot of other people who aren't thinking that way or maybe aren't feeling that way who who deserve more than what you're giving them. And the last one is, you know, what do I expect of myself? And if the job's actually costing you then other, you know, key and critical components of your life, if it means that you don't see your family or you are having those sleepless nights and therefore you're not getting up in the morning and exercising or meditating or whatever it is because you're too stuffed. Well, it's beholden on you to actually to do something about it. But I would say very few people, in fact, have a regular process of reflection where they would look, and they're just my three questions. There's like a, there's a million other opportunities out there for other questions, clearly. They're just the ones I do. But I sit down with leaders and CEOs who have spent a lifetime climbing a mountain and they've got to the top of the mountain and they don't like the view. And I would say something's gone wrong somewhere within those three questions. And perhaps if they'd actually thought about it in a, in a less um, ego performance-driven way, and, and I'm not a great role model in regard to that, well, maybe they might have got themselves into that position because the chances are also at that time they're very locked into their lives as well. You know, they've got kids in private schools and mortgages on houses and all that sort of stuff. So they've allowed themselves to get locked into their paycheck as well as locked into their whatever the status of the job is. Yeah, I certainly find that with a lot of people in my world who are very unhappy in their jobs. As soon as I say, well, why don't you change or do something else? Or, you know, you've got a passion to write a book or you've got some, whatever it is they want to do. The first response is always, I can't afford to. I can't afford to quit my job or I can't afford to take a job that pays less because, as you said, they've locked into that lifestyle. They can't work out how to change it without having that perception of 
disappointing other people, whether it's their partner or their kids or their family or whoever else. It's a really tricky one, I think, for a lot of people today. That is because there's a lot of pride and there's a lot of other things. You know, we've all heard a million stories of people who felt that way, who who were forced to make the change that through situation and circumstance, whether it was a health or they got the sack or whatever it might be, who will then say to you six, you know, they'll say to you, you know, six years later, gee, it was the best thing which ever happened to me. And in my last job, I was sacked, you know, and it was sacked in a really public way. And I can't say that I was saying it was the best thing which ever happened to me. And I'm not sure if it was, but it certainly has opened up stuff for me that I would never have opened up had I still been plowing through my however many hours a week trying to run a, a footy club, which is struggling, you know. So I've got no doubt that it's played, it's played a big role, no doubt. Yeah, I know quite a few people who've changed their lives because of losing their job, either through being sacked or redundancies or illness, and they now say it was the best thing ever. Not at the time, obviously, but it gave them the freedom to make choices that are now working a whole lot better in their world in general. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's how I ended up studying art. Yeah, that was the, the very. Yeah. You know, I wouldn't have studied art full time had I not. Because I was sort of searching for meaning, if you like, you know, or searching mm. for that. Um, and I knew I liked art, but, you know, but by you don't know whether you, how much you like something until you have to do it, you have to do it every waking hour, because that's fundamentally what you do. And then, you know, if you're waking up in the morning thinking about how you can create something, make something, explore something, well, you probably worked out that maybe it is for you. How did you come to that decision to go back to college to study art? Um, it was probably my because I never did an undergraduate degree, so I went straight from school and worked in in sport. And I studied later on. I took time out and I did um, an MBA and a marketing masters, and went overseas and studied as well. And I think I was always a drawer. I always used to draw. And you know, if someone asked my mum about my childhood, well, she would say, "Oh, Cameron was always drawing or making things." And probably came from that. And when I was in Perth and having to travel regularly, I'd, I'd often use that time on the plane just with my sketchbooks and. I was probably, without sounding like a wanker, I I was the kid in the class who could draw a bit. That was probably my thing. And then the idea of just really exploring whatever that was, I knew that if I just said, oh, look, what I'll do is I'll just allocate a few hours every day to do some drawing, well, that was never going to cut it. I knew I had to put myself into the world of whatever that thing was. So I ended up getting into the Victorian College of the Arts and and also I was was in my 50s, so having to live it every day as – waking up and going into a studio which was as you'd left it the day before and and sometimes with the same blank canvas which had been staring at you for about the last six weeks. That was just a really interesting place. And sometimes I think if we if we do the same thing all the time, our even if we go into environments of like for instance if I I was CEO at Fremantle when when I went to Harvard, but because my context was always how I could apply this to the footy club the marginal return on the investment I was making in my learning was always going to be relatively low because I'd been doing it for a long time. Whereas to go and put yourself into an environment where it's just so different, I found that I learned more about even the creative process. I always considered myself a relatively creative CEO, but I'd never actually explored how I become a creative person. And a lot of the stuff I now teach, whilst I teach CEOs, you'd think come out of my experience as a CEO, but it actually comes out of my experience of being a full-time artist. Yeah. Did you find that time studying full-time was luxurious? No, because I put that much pressure on myself that I didn't. No, it should be, shouldn't it? But it's not because 
comparisons and expectations eke in regardless. And so having to manage those things, particularly with art, because if you produce something, you, you end up putting it out there, even if you're only putting it out there for you know, your fellow students, but you're still putting it out there. And you, you've got lecturers who are forcing you to go deeper and think more. And I don't know what luxurious feels like. It, it just, it should have been that, but it wasn't. And because I, I really wanted to be a good artist, but I didn't know anything about what a good artist looks like. In my, my interpretation probably of a good artist growing up was someone who could draw things to look like things. Whereas my interpretation of being a good artist coming into art school was, can I create a conversation around something? And I had one of my lecturers, a guy by the name of Raf Ishak, who's a wonderful fellow. He said to me at one stage, you, you do art like a CEO. And that was like the <laughs> ultimate bloody you know, put down. Yeah, but, he, but he wasn't intending that. He, what he was basically saying was that you are looking to conclude and – take people down a pathway which is way too obvious. You know, you're looking to conclude the conversation rather than open up the conversation. Yeah. And so it was a wonderful piece of advice and that then helps me with the stuff I'm doing now in regard to this openness about learning as it relates to creating, you know, a new place for myself in the world. In I'm fundamentally a teacher now, as in I teach leaders, leadership, that, that I perhaps wouldn't have had had I uh, gone straight from sport Although sport's much more creative and sport's much more because we have to teach a lot. We spend all our time teaching. There's a certain creativity which comes from that, but not to the same degree as obviously having to um, to to make mm. something, you know, to put something out there. Do you think you're a good artist now? No, no, not at all. I think I'm just very much a work in progress because I know how much, how far I can take it if I want to. I think you're an amazing artist and I can't draw a stick figure to make it look like a stick figure. So <laughs> I'm full of awe for people. That's, again, an interpretation. I could probably – I worked out relatively early through – probably just through that constant practice as a child that I could draw things that looked vaguely like other things. You said before that you want your art to tell a story and yeah. every time I look at one of your drawings – I immediately can see a story in that. And I think the stories, whether my interpretation of it is what your interpretation is, may or may not be the same, I don't know. But I look at what you do and I think, wow, that's so powerful because I can get a sense for the message that you're trying to get across to people. Yeah. And again, that's actually important because I'm not trying to just tell one story. And the, the interesting thing is that because I'll, I'll sometimes use my art now to accommodate or to accompany some of my writing. And I'm using art which wouldn't have, when I did it, that wasn't what I was intending at the time. But it works. It makes sense. Because I've left enough ambiguity in the original piece of work, it can then relate to another form of ambiguity in whatever I'm writing about. And it doesn't matter. And it's, no one's looking at it and going, it's like when you speak at different times, you know, you, you would have had this experience. You get down and you go, gee, I forgot to say this, this and this. But no one in the crowd knows that you forgot to say those three things. You know, so, exactly. That happens to me all the time. <laughs> yeah, when you're sort of kicking yourself and you go, oh, God, I left my best bit out. And then people are coming up and say, oh, that was really, you know, you go, oh, well, okay, no worries, move on. But then you can also go back to that client and say, hey, I'd love to come back again and talk about A, B, and C, yeah, thinking yeah, to yourself, right. I left all those things out, so I can do that next yeah. time. <laughs> yeah, that's right. We can look really clever. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah, no. 
So it's been interesting coming together, the whole thing. But I find the same thing with writing because I really – because I played guitar growing up as well. So what I've actually worked out is that the creative side, look, I haven't picked up my guitar for a long time. I'm not sure if you've got enough room for all of them at the same time. I know some people do, but I've really got a lot out of the writing, which is, again, came a little bit more natural for me and the drawing. And so I'm probably doing more writing than drawing now. And the good thing about the work that we're doing is that provides plenty of opportunities for that. And you get the opportunity also, if you do a piece of work, whack it out there and see what people think. Exactly. Yeah, life's an experiment. You might not like it, but that doesn't mean other people won't. No, I probably don't put stuff out there that I don't like. I reckon it's got to pass at least that test of half-life. And, and interesting because some people, when they come back to you, they, you know, they'll, they'll tell you, yeah, no, really, that had a deep effect on me, this piece you did, whatever, and, and they never, you know, they didn't like it or comment on it or whatever it was. But it's like a, uh, hopefully you're giving a bit of goodness to the world. There's a certain generosity with it that in the end will, will, hold, you in, um, will hold you in good stead over, over time. Mm. We just have a couple of minutes left, so I'd just like to ask you a couple of final quick questions. Is there something that you do to become more connectable with people? And I think I know the answer to this. Do you? What was, give me your answer and I'll, uh, I'll tell you. I think through your art and through your writing that invites people to have a conversation with you and to get to know you more. Yeah, probably, probably. But I think it's having a certain openness when you're with people, I think is probably the... I think that's generosity and don't worry, I've stuffed this up a lot. So it's not when you're in something or do something for a long time, there's a tendency you can divide opinion a little bit. So there'd be different people who would have very different views of me. And the interesting thing about even moving away from the sport is that it's a biblical metaphor about a prophet finding a new village. And I think in some ways I found that a little bit, you know, because I was in the same village you know, for basically all my life. And now to do that, so how do you connect with something which is a new village? Well, every conversation you're having with people might be the first time you're having that conversation, whereas my conversations I had in my previous life were the thousands and third conversation I'd had with that person. So I think it's mainly through just being good with people, when, particularly if they seek you out. You know, I think that there's something that you're doing which they would like to learn more about. I set a fairly, I'd like to think I set a good standard for myself in regard to how helpful I can be at that time because I, I know that at some stage the because um, I'm working this stuff out as we go as well that I'm going to be doing likewise and, and there's, that there's a whilst it might be with that person there's at least a, a decency that you've exhibited that might get reciprocated at some point. Mm-hmm. I like that. Is there a book or a podcast that you've read or listened to that's really impacted you? Probably the most impactful book of my life is Old Man and the Sea by Ernest Hemingway. It's one of those books you're at school and you're told to read and you do and, and I was I was always surprisingly liked it, you know. I had and there's I don't know if you know the book, but it's only a short book, it's only about a hundred pages long. And then I had this experience of I went down to Sorrento just in the Peninsula Peninsula and the place that I was staying had a copy of it in its bookshelf and it was by circumstance I would, I was going regularly down to that house and each summer I'd read the book and what I'd realised was that the book kept changing each time I read it because my context kept on changing. You know, I'd, I'd read it as a boy and then I'd read it as a young man and then I read it as a father and 
And more recently, I read it or I listened to it on Audible and Donald Sutherland was narrating it and it's just a wonderful oh. narration of the book. And so I probably relate because the three characters really are an, an old man, a boy and a fish, you know, and and I, at one stage I was the boy and then I felt like I was the fish, which is a big marlin, which is ends up getting um, getting itself in a bit of strife and then in the end the old man and probably more the old man now. And that's always a timeless book for me. Mm. And, in regards to just pure people who love their sport, the book Legacy by James Kerr is just outstanding. Even if you're not heavily into sport, it's there's this lovely – it touches very much on the, the learning and the spiritual elements of what sport's all about. Mm. Then there's, um, I think, uh, the, the two books which have had in regard to just getting stuff organised in life books. I think James Clear's Atomic Habits, which I'm sure you've probably spoken about, has just layers and layers of learning in it, but it's also very applicable or repliable. That's also one of those books that you can pick up and read and get something different from every time you read it. Yeah, you can. And what I love about it is that it just didn't talk about the, yeah, it talked about the very systematic approach to habits and there probably wasn't anything dramatically different there, but the key for me was the alignment with identity and the stuff that we talked about earlier. And I had an experience recently, for instance, I was in a, a meeting with a lot of senior people and I just asked the question, I said, "Who put your hand up if you're a leader and, and hardly anyone put their hand up. And then I said, put your hand up if you're actually leading people, as in people are responsible to you. And everyone put their hand up. And then I asked the question, I said, how many people have got kids? And they put how many put their hands up. I said, well, how many of you consider yourself parents? Well, the same people put their hands up. And so this notion of had, are you prepared to call yourself a leader? It's almost as though like I'm embarrassed to admit it or something like that. If you don't think of yourself a leader, well, the chances are other people don't see you as that either. So that's why I thought that the Atomic Habits was really valuable. And also like Deep Work by Cal Newport. Oh, that's such a great book. <laughs> yeah, it just talks to the competitive advantage we can actually create for ourselves just by allocating time to go deep. That seems to me like a, a bit of a no, you can't lose on that one. There's a word which I just came across today called akresia. I think it's a old Greek word, and it's basically says something like knowing what the right thing is to do, but not doing anything about it. You know, so quite like that. I think we all can be a little bit guilty about that. Yeah, look, I think we're much better talking about it than doing it because it just actually requires that, doesn't it, in its own in its own little way. Yeah. Finally, where can people find you if they'd like to connect with you? Yeah, just at uh, Design CEO, and my email's Cameron at designceo.com.au. That's Design CEO, one word. And on LinkedIn, obviously, I've put a fair whack of stuff up on um, on LinkedIn. I like to keep that quite regular. I just throw stuff out there and see what people think. And if you do want to look at some of Cameron's art, then he does share a lot of that on LinkedIn and on the website. Yeah, I've also got a page on my website now. Yeah, yeah. So I've whacked it up there. And yeah, so I've tried to set my website up in a way where people can spend half an hour there if they want to rather than just go there for, for the purposes of just finding out where I live. Mm, that's clever. Well, thank you very, very much. Well, thanks, Mel. I appreciate it. Enjoyed the chat. Well, that's it for this episode. Thank you so much for listening. If you liked what you heard, please hit subscribe so you don't miss any future episodes. And if you really liked what you heard, please leave me a review on iTunes or a recommendation on LinkedIn or both. The show notes are all on the website, melkettle.com forward slash podcast. And I'd love you to connect with me on LinkedIn or Twitter. You'll find me at Mel Kettle. See you next time and stay connected. Bye.